This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Street Fighting Years, an autobiography of the 60s by Tariq Ali. What makes a young radical? Reissued to coincide with the 50th anniversary of 1968, Street Fighting Years captures the mood and energy of an era of hope and passion, as Tariq Ali tracks the growing significance of the 1960s protest movement, as well as his own formation as a leading political activist. Through his personal story, he recounts a counter-history of a 60s rocked by the Prague Spring, student protests on the streets of Europe and America, the effects of the Vietnam War, and the aftermath of the revolutionary insurgencies led by Che Guevara. It is a story that takes us from Paris and Prague to Hanoi and Bolivia, encountering along the way Malcolm X, Bertrand Russell, Marlon Brando, Henry Kissinger, and Mick Jagger. Street Fighting Years, an autobiography of the 60s by Tariq Ali. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Last week, I posted an interview that I recorded in Barcelona on Spanish politics. We talked about the question of Catalan independence and how it has served to sideline the left and questions of economic justice. And we discussed the municipalist movement governing cities like Barcelona. What we really didn't talk that much about was the fact that the conservative Spanish government of Mariano Rajoy was about to fall, which it did just a few days later. And uh, that is sort of important. So I'm bringing sociologist Carlos Del Clos back on today for a brief follow-up interview. I recommend that you listen to the big episode we did on Spanish politics last week first, if you haven't already. Before we get rolling, please support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. That's how we pay our bills and how you can gain access to our stellar weekly newsletter and get me to send you socialist books in the mail. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Carlos Del Clos, a sociologist, researcher, editor for Roar Magazine, and the author of Hope is a Promise, From the Indignados to the Rise of Podemos in Spain. Carlos Doclos, welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having me. I've had people back on the show before, but I don't think ever quite this fast. We had a great interview in Barcelona two weeks ago with you, Kate Shea Baird, and Bekir Seguin, and we discussed everything, pretty much, except the fact that the conservative popular party government of Mariano Rajoy was about to fall, which uh, you was crumbling on... as we were speaking. <laughs> yeah, you touched it on it very briefly at the end. Um, yes. What happened, and who is the new prime minister? While we were talking, well, so one of the we were talking about the indignado, so it was kind of in the background. We didn't jump over it, but one of the the big topics that um, that kind of inspired a lot of the indignation in, in the you know post two thousand post two thousand and eleven period uh, was this case called the Gortel case, 
Um, and it was a large, large, large corruption scandal that affected, we're talking hundreds, uh, even up to a thousand of, uh, of the popular party, the conservative party, Mariano Rajoy's party, uh, of their militants, of their, of their participants. And this goes from mayors of, uh, of Valencia or, and, um, and of major, and other major and smaller cities, um, up to, um, you know, major players in the in the popular party going back 30 years. So this is even going back to before they were the popular party when they were Alianza Popular, right? So there was this huge, huge, huge corruption ring uh, through which they exchanged political favors, abused the concession of public contracts to to basically award large events, which which as we touched on um, briefly during the during the discussion last uh, last week, um, Spain's economic model is very much, you know, tourism oriented and, and based on sort of attracting, you know, large scale macro events like the Olympics in Barcelona or Formula One in Valencia. So Formula One in Valencia was one of these major macro events that that was just, you know, uh, covered in all types of political favors and, and corruption that affected largely the popular party. So. This scandal was always in the background. What happened while we were talking basically was that the ruling, um, the courts ruled that not just that some people in the popular party were, um, were guilty of participating in corruption. I mean, that we kind of knew um, that they had, you know, you know, dirty books was, has been clear for several years at this point, but the court actually ruled that this affected the entirety of the party, of the popular party and that it goes back 30 years and that Mariano Rajoy, you know, they insinuated that he gave false testimony. So this is, you know, this doesn't change. This isn't a very different situation than it was a year before when Podemos presented their no confidence vote. But, you know, the, the PSOE, the Spanish Socialist Party being very, you know, legalist and law and ordery and all these kind of, you know, uh, faux policy wonk signifiers, um, being very formalist, let's say, they, they, they realize that, you know, we, uh, we got to present this no confidence vote now because, um, you know, we have the votes um, and, and we can kick them out. So Podemos basically pressured uh, the socialists by saying, hey, you know, we're not even going to put any conditions. You know, if you if you present a no confidence vote and present Pedro Sanchez, the, the leader of the Socialist Party, the, sec the secretary general, uh, general at the time, if you present him as the candidate for president, we'll support, no questions asked. Um, and so what happened was that the Socialist Party, with the support of Podemos and with the support of the nationalist parties, um, used a congressional majority, a parliamentary majority, to kick out Mariano Rajoy. And there was a lot of, you know, really good political posturing and theater in, in the week following our, um, our, our discussion. And, and that's basically what happened. The, the government fell. And now uh, Pedro Sanchez is the president of Spain. Um, he's already done a few, you know, kind of symbolically charged kind of things by naming a ministry, uh, having most of the ministries uh, led by women um, and, you know, not swearing on the Bible and not having religious imagery uh, present at his swearing in, which is kind of a thing in Spain. And, um, and so what he's going to do is he's going to govern from 
a position of a minority, that's 84 uh, seats in the Spanish parliament, uh, which has 350 total. But he's going to govern thanks to the support of Podemos and uh, the nationalist parties. Before we get into what that government will look like, to, to what degree is this a, a long-term blow to the popular party and the Spanish right? And to what extent is there still a, a really strong constituency for conservative politics that someone else might come and fill? It seems like a pretty huge blow to the popular party. Um, there's already a ton of infighting going on. Um, Jose Maria Aznar, the former Spanish president, uh, who represents sort of the far right of uh, of the popular party, is already saying, you know, he's already uh, dancing on the grave of Mariano Rajoy and kind of appealing to a harder stance. Uh, Ciudadanos is now scrambling to um, to pick up the popular party's, you know, uh, exit votes, let's say, um, and. And it's very important to point out that Ciudadanos who present themselves as an anti-corruption, pro-democratic regeneration, pseudo-fascist technocratic party um, are, are actually the only party that supported uh, Mariano Rajoy's presidency in the no confidence vote. So right now they're, they're fighting for the scraps, right, um, of, of this party. And there's going to be a ton of infighting. The polls, there, there was one poll that I saw um, on Electomania um, in shortly after the no confidence vote that showed uh, slightly rising support for Podemos, uh, rising support for Ciudadanos amongst the amongst PP voters, uh, just uh, a collapse of the popular party voters. But bad news, uh, a seat for Vox, the uh, Steve Bannon aided uh, far right party in Spain. So, so yes, there is infighting uh, in the Spanish right. This infighting, um, on the surface, may look like you know a good divide and conquer type of situation, right? Uh, where you can fracture the right and kind of, um, you know, uh, have them be in some kind of a minority. But this could actually condition uh, or tempt the uh, socialist party to try to scoop up. Uh, centrist votes from from Ciudadanos as they fight to uh, assert their right wing sort of uh, credentials at a time when um, part of one part of what's very interesting about the socialist government right now is that uh, they represent not just a, a you know center left Spain with the support of the radical left and with the nationalist parties but it also you know in that heterogeneous comp, uh, composition, they represent a more pluralistic Spain than the monolithic Spain that the that the far right supports. So to kind of scoop up some votes from from the Ciudadanos type of voters, one of the, the concerns is that Pedro Sanchez and the socialists might try to, you know, play the centralist card um, and kind of free up some space for them to um, to not be so held down by their pacts with the nationalists and the the regional nationalists and the and the radical left. Pedro Sanchez is in this really precarious position. He he needs support from right now at least Podemos and Basque and Catalan separatists to govern. But but Sanchez had previously backed Rajoy's brutal crackdown on Catalonia during the independence referendum, and mm-hmm. since then he said since I I guess when he I don't know if it was since taking office or 
when during the no confidence vote, he said that he wanted to open a dialogue with Catalonia. But if he gets too dovish, he'll expose himself to attacks from Spanish nationalists from various corners. How do you see Sanchez moving forward, both in terms of his relationship with with Catalan separatists, and I guess Basque separatists as well, and also with, with Podemos? Because as you were saying before, you know, the, the current government, the the legs, you know, unstably supporting it are these separatist parties in Podemos. And he might be tempted to move to the right and get support from the neoliberal Catalonia-based anti-Catalan independence party, Ciudadanos. But if he does that, that will very much undermine, I suspect, his already very wobbly support from the separatists and Podemos. What is this balancing act going to look like? One of the things that is important to understand, I mean, yes, Pedro Sanchez made a complete 180 from statements that he made, or actually from a position he took a week prior to the to the ruling, to the court ruling, um, and to the vote of no confidence, because he had actually argued to change the penal code, which is already ridiculous, um, to to include the type of rebellion or supposed sedition that. Uh, Carlos Puigdemont, the Cat- Catalan president, engaged in right. So he goes from this hardline anti, uh, you know, anti self determination uh, position uh, to suddenly saying, you know, during the debate of the no confidence vote, saying, you know, listen, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna deescalate this uh, this situation. We're going to dialogue, and then you know he's given lessons to. To, to Ciudadanos and Partido Popular about their um, about their failed strategy, right? And saying like, look, we don't want to feed this conflict anymore. Um, we and and we may find that decentralization. This is a you know evidence based little talking point here. Decentralization may actually contribute to um, to lowering the chances for corruption. Right, it's a democratic check. So, so he's very much taken this position to get those those votes. He's taken this position of you know naming you know decentralization of a of the Spanish state of talking about a supposedly federalist solution, um, of embracing dialogue, of de-escalation, of all these kinds of things. Today, for instance, um, you know that the government announced that they would uh, they would retire um, the the central government's uh, control through intervention of the Catalan economy, uh, which is something that the Popular Party had enacted and kind of lifted by the end of it. But you know, it was a, it was a step for Sanchez to kind of say, "Okay, well, we're relinquishing control here." You know, he's he's giving making these gestures towards uh, regaining self governance in Catalonia, the the amount that they had already established by the the constitution, and then from there he's kind of making these points. But of course, you know. What um, what are the incentives right now? Well, he's he's kind of playing. He has two incentives basically. Uh, on the one hand, he can show, and this is something that uh, that his ministers have been saying, and that uh, he he you know expressed during the no confidence vote, that we need to move towards a Spain where diversity is our strength, uh, where people can identify themselves however they want. Um, you know this kind of uh, this kind of you know pluralistic uh, framework. Um, however, at the same time, you know the composition of the government right now is such that if he governs from a position of a, of a minority, 
he technically could um, try to pact with both sides. So try to to um, to consolidate social progress, social advances. You know. Um, changing the rental laws in Spain or the housing laws in Spain, changing um, or, or abolishing many parts of the gag law, uh, which is very, very draconian and repressive, and, you know, doing all of these things with the support of Podemos, but then um, looking at the, the right, um, the disheveled right, uh, for support to kind of, uh, to back them on centralist measures. And now, of course, um, he can play this game. And I think the calculation is, you know, I can kind of scoop up votes from both sides and then going into elections in about a year and a half or two, um, you know, get a stronger majority and take some votes back from Podemos, maybe take some votes back from, uh, from Ciudadanos. But, you know, how credible is that going to look if that's what he's doing? You know, I mean, he's, he's already espoused a, a discourse that says, um, you know, we need to be open to dialogue. And we, this is a new day in Spain where, um, you know, this parliamentary majority that they already had, by the way, in 2015 and 2016, this could have been the government, you know, two years ago. Um, uh, but, but you know, this is a new day and we need to respect uh, pluralism and blah, blah, blah. blah and, uh, and, and the popular party strategy has failed completely. Um, he needs to make this good, you know, make good on this. Who is Pedro Sanchez? ideologically, politically speaking, what sort of current or moment in history of the PSOE, the, the Socialist Party in Spain, does he represent? Well, for this one, Daniel, I'm going to have to go with a shameless plug and say you should read my article on Jacobin about this. Uh, <laughs> uh, plugs are always um, no. welcome on this show, particularly if they're for Jacobin articles. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I wrote an article some time ago. Um, so Pedro Sanchez is a guy who, um, he was... You know, he led. Uh, he was the secretary general of the of the Socialist Party during the last elections, which were the kind of the ones where Podemos mm, took the stage very forcefully. Um, and one of the positions that he took during the debates, uh, you know, people make fun of him because he's like, uh, you know, he's a he's kind of a Ken doll, kind of handsome guy, right? Uh, <laughs> kind of guy you. Uh, What's so who, bad about You know, that? you make jokes about. What's so funny nothing, about a nothing. handsome man? <laughs> <laughs> Everything about handsome men is funny. Um, in, in any case, uh, he looks like someone who could be in a toothpaste commercial or selling insurance. But in, 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 either, uh, in either case, he was kind of a person that was like made fun of for these things as like, uh, he's just a man with no attributes and he looks like he could be selling you insurance or toothpaste <laughs> or anything, frankly. Um, and, and so, the, you know, he got made fun of for this, but he was actually kind of competing for for Podemos votes a lot of the time. And one of his positions was, I will not vote for Rajoy, okay? No matter what I do, I am not gonna support a Rajoy government. And lo and behold, when the time came to vote, his party said yes, but he, um, he resigned before uh, the party, um, I guess the party establishment uh, made this force its decision upon upon its militants. So he resigned. It should be somewhat and... common sense, you'd think, even for just like a like neoliberally oriented, even social democratic party to not vote for a prime minister who comes out of a right wing party with its roots in a fascist dictatorship. Well, you would think so. <laughs> but Spain. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, no, you would think so. But at the time, uh, it's, it you know, 
basically they needed to it wasn't so much that they voted in favor of it they abstained um or something like that i can't quite recall right now um being on the phone and whatnot but the point is that um basically pedro sanchez uh and the socialist party at that point knew that uh it was either going to be a government between them and the nationalists and podemos or it was going to be this ciudadanos and uh and pepe government and they they just sided with them at that point. And yeah, it was, it was kind of flabbergasting. And, and again, so Sanchez, you know, made the no brainer decision of like, no, I'm not going to, it's not going to be because of me. Not going to teach myself. He looked, ahead, he looked ahead a few years and, you know, that's exactly right. And what he did was he did this very like mythical sort of, uh, you know, hero's journey where, uh, where he, you know, got on it, got in his car and just started driving around Spain. You know, that's how the, this was presented in the media. Right. So like he puts on his cool leather jacket and, uh, and he starts driving around Spain and talking to the people. And then he presented himself to the, uh, once again, to the, to the party's primaries, um, where he challenged the establishment candidate, uh, Susana Diaz, who is uh, from the, the Andalusia's, uh, Andalusia Socialist Party. Uh, and she's very much like the party establishment, Felipe Gonzalez, uh, you know, the, the basic corrupt center left that, that exists in Spain. Um, and he appealed to the the party militancy in a in a very you know uh, very strong left wing position uh, for them, and and won and beat Susana Diaz. Um, so there was a strange situation where the secretary general of the Socialist Party was not a member of Parliament, right? Um, which is which is what uh, which was what was interesting. One of the things that was interesting about this no confidence vote was that the candidate for president was not an actual parliamentarian at the time. So so he did this kind of you know hero's journey type of mythological thing where you know he he came back and you know promised to kind of revive this party and you know their motto now if you look at pictures of folks from Besoy with a nice uh, you know with their fist and rose and red uh, background. Uh, the the phrase that accompanies them, the motto is "Somos la izquierda." We are the left, um, which is you know debatable. But and also debatable, but also to Podemos's credit, and though perhaps peril as well, uh, reflective of how Podemos and other movements in Spain have shifted the the center left left. Well, exactly. I mean, it's it's very much an example of how I'll put it this way. PSOE, the, the Spanish Socialist Party, did not get PASOCified. Why did they not become uh, PASOCified? Like, why didn't they have the same fate as the Greek Socialist Party? Because they've, for a long time, been able to polarize uh, political debate with, uh, with the popular party and be able to sort of distinguish themselves from them, right? Because, you know, again, the, the, the popular party is, you know, uh, they pass draconian, you know, attacks on free speech. They take over the news media and make it no longer the public media and make it no longer independent and all these kinds of things. So there are these, you know, they have a hard stance against abortion and all these kinds of things. And so, of course, you know, um, uh, the, the Socialist Party can kind of keep a distance from them. But um, at the same time, yeah, Podemos has managed to shift uh, the appeal uh, to the left. But there's another aspect to that slogan, which is. Um, that which is what they're Podemos is trying. Uh, sorry, the socialists are trying to do, which is to keep from becoming a subaltern left party to Podemos. So what they're saying when they say we are the left is 
They're saying we are the possibility of a left-wing government. Without Podem, uh, if you're just going to rely on Podemos, they will never. The left will never govern in Spain. Again. We'll never have a majority. That's never. That's 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 their that's their their frame, right? And so um, one of the things that's you know that's really worrying people here uh, on the left is like, well, this possibility of this may be true, right? Um, because there's a there's a generational gap. Like young people don't really vote for socialist the socialist party. Young left wing people mostly vote for Podemos, right? Um, but older left-wing people don't vote for Podemos and older left-wing people vote for the Socialist Party. So how are we going to bridge those two de- uh, generations? That's, that's, that's really difficult to, to see. Is a stable coalition between Podemos and the Socialists, is that imaginable in the short or medium term? It's certainly imaginable. Um, the, the question becomes... One is it desirable? Of, well, that's 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 an interesting question because, and this is you know my um, the fifteen M in me is going to come out right now because at least um, <laughs> it, it's it kind of doesn't matter. Um, there, it, what do I mean by that? It if I don't really care which party is governing as long as specific uh, policy measures or as long as specific uh, policy positions are taken, right? So the social movements have a set of demands about housing, about um, free speech, about you know, self-determination or uh, you know, the territorial agreements in Spain and all these kinds of things. So in a sense, uh, to debate whether the person responsible for passing those things is Podemos or the Socialist Party, I think is secondary to the actual objective. Um, now, Realistically, if you ask me like, okay, but, you know, um, who, you know, I would, I would personally rather Podemos be able to pick up the glove than, than, than the Socialist Party. But no matter what, I think that the outcome is going to depend on popular mobilization, right? Um, the, the coalition between the Socialists and the, and the new left parties um, has already proven somewhat fragile at the city level where they've been governing, right? Because, um, for instance, in Barcelona, Barcelona and Comú began their mandate with the support of the socialist government, uh, with, the, with the support of the socialist party in, Catalonia, in Barcelona, but that pact was eventually broken due to the socialist party's support for uh, intervention in, in Catalonia. So, so you know, um, on the one hand, yes, like I would rather see the new left parties uh, be the ones to kind of channel social movement demands and uh, the demands of, of people that are on the bottom and having a really hard time in Spain. Um, but I, I don't think social movements and citizen demands need to be tailoring their discourses such that they are more um, profitable to one party or another. That's just a different type of logic than social movements need to kind of adapt, you know, take on. Um, so, so yeah, I, I know that's a long-winded answer, but, but I do think that the coalition, a coalition is possible. I think it could be desirable if the Socialist Party and if Podemos and if the, you know, the presumably progressive nationalist parties um, are porous to citizen, de- you know, demands for social justice and, and, you know, left wing 
you know, um, policy preferences, which are majoritarian in Spain. Um, and as we discussed but, in the uh, another necessity, as we discussed at length in the last episode, is that there be some resolution hmm. to these national questions in such a way that it allows left-wing issues, priorities around economic justice in particular, to, to reemerge. Hmm. And well, precisely. There's this is a very good moment to for movements to set the agenda is what I want to is what I want to get at. Um, now, the the goal would be to set an agenda that is, um, you know, massively supported and, you know, emancipatory uh, and involves shutting down immigrant detention centers and, um, you know, improving the working lives of people here. Um, and not excluding uh, immigrants from healthcare and things like that, which are which are a bunch of points that all of these groups have in common, right? Um, but of course, if if we get stuck in the more identitarian uh, questions of politics, which I think party politics are ultimately a reflection of, uh, especially in Spain where it's so fragmented, um, I think that we're going to have serious problems passing things, uh, and we're going to have serious problems. Not annoying people to the point where uh, the the right, who don't really have identitarian problems, they have struggles over power, right? Like they all agree on the same identitarian framework. Uh, they just, you know, have a disagreement over who gets a cut of the pie. Um, but once they figure that out, which doesn't take very long usually, um, they can go ahead and and scoop power back up, and and that's what I'm really worried about. So that's why I think it's so important for for the impetus to be on parties to be porous to an active and engaged uh, populace. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by the Socialism 2018 Conference. If you like this podcast and want to connect with other radicals in real life, you should come this summer. The Socialism Conference is four days of political education, debate, and camaraderie. It takes place July 5th through 8th in Chicago and features activists, authors, and people just like you from across the country and around the world. Featured speakers include Boots Riley, Dave Zirin, Sarah Jaffe, Anand Gopal, Amy Goodman, and many more. The conference is packed with talks on everything from eco-socialism and climate change to black athletes in revolt to debates around topics like gun violence, resisting the police, socialists in elections, and the fight for universal health care. There will also be discussion about the movements of today, from Me Too to Black Lives Matter to Lessons from the Teachers' Revolt, featuring voices from the front lines of the strikes. Socialism is co-sponsored by the Center for Economic Research and Social Change, ISO, Haymarket Books, Socialist Workers, and by Jacobin, and will feature talks with Jacobin contributors on lessons from the current teachers' rebellion, the movements of 1968, Bernie Sanders, the future of the socialist left, and more. The conference is also a great space to learn the basics of Marxism. To learn more about the conference and to register, visit socialismconference.org. That's socialismconference.org. Two last questions. First, where does Podemos stand more generally right now? In in the last episode, we discussed Chalet Gate and the uproar <laughs> over party leader Pablo Iglesias and his partner and his partner Irene Montero, a party congressional leader, buying this pricey house in the suburbs. What mm-hmm. happened since? 
what happened since is that the government fell and um and that's kind of been in the headlines now and chalet gate is kind of mostly a wedge issue or like a, a talking point amongst like militants or or um or people that are you know treating politics a little bit more like more like gossip at this point because like the thing is that like it's very much it's a very problematic uh, issue, the chalet. Uh, I mean, it's something that kind of goes against their ethical codes and all these kinds of things. But when it's overshadowed by molar politics, like really large scale politics, like the government falling, um, that changes the frame so much that, well, that almost just becomes the left-wing agitator in the parliament, right? Um, and Pablo Iglesias has done a lot in recent days to kind of uh, take that up. And to say, you know, he was asking, uh, he was saying that the socialists needed to form a government with Podemos, not just on their own, so that they could be stronger, and that would condition them to take a more left-wing agenda, presumably. Um, but he's doing this kind of uh, pressure from the left already, probably because I imagine he thinks that going on the offensive is going to make people forget about this. And for the short term, that seems to be true. Um, but you know these kinds of issues. Uh, someone wrote a really good article um, recently, saying that this decision kind of mortgaged the party, and it's a mortgage that the party can't keep paying. And this idea of a mortgage that you can't pay is, you know, that is the imaginary of the Spanish social crisis. That is what happened, and how we <laughs> had such an enormous economic crisis with people taking on mortgages that, or banks giving away mortgages that people couldn't pay. Um, and people are, you know. I'm, I'm not sure they're going to forget this when elections come around, for instance, right? I mean, there, there have to be serious steps taken or serious gains made for this to not be something you can hurl at Podemos um, without, you know, uh, without doing a lot of damage, right? Finally, there are two important social movements that we didn't get a chance to talk about in our last interview. First, mm -hmm. these retiree protests against pensions losing ground to inflation. And then second, an enormous women's strike that I'm sure a lot of my listeners saw um, or read about online in March mm -hmm. in response to a light verdict handed down to five men in a gang rape case. Yeah. Can you briefly yeah. explain these mobilizations and their significance for the near-term future of the Spanish left? So the, the, the women's strike was not a response to the gang rape case. That's, that's important to make oh, okay. a distinction. The, the women's strike was basically the Spanish feminist movement's um, approach to International Women's Day, right? Um, and it was massive. I mean, it was, it was, it was really huge, you know? Um, Spain is a country that is kind of an outlier in social movement studies, like really large numbers of people participate in protests in Spain. Um, and in the most recent survey that had this data, 25% of the Spanish population had said that uh, they had participated in a strike and a very large proportion of them were, were women. Um, and this was because of the, the women's strike. So it, it managed to bring feminist, uh, bring feminist politics onto the main political stage, like it made it something you just can't ignore. And it did so in a way that focused on work 
in a way that is very different than a lot of the the feminism you see on television, for instance, in the United States. Um, so, you know, kind of like the memes that were going around and all this kind of stuff were very much oriented around like, um, you know, Paco, uh, you fucking cook and clean and take care of this shit. Uh, I'm going to march today, you know, uh, I'm, I'm on strike, this kind of thing. Um, and then, of course, in the labor market, this also had important implications. So it was it was it was a very, very large scale mobilization. How is this going to affect politics? Well, it certainly wasn't a flash in the pan. The Spanish feminist movement has is very brash and like really strong and it has been for several years. Um, but it's very much been emboldened by this amazing display of force um, or of strength. And then the the court ruling in that gang rape trial called La Manada, right? It was, La Manada was like this kind of, uh, it, was, it means the swarm and it was what these five disgusting bros, two of which were cops and soldiers, um, they basically gang raped a young woman uh, during the running of the bulls, uh, the San Fermin uh, festival. One of the police officers took her cell phone, threw it away. I mean, it's disgusting. If you read the, if you read the, if if you read the details about it, I was actually avoiding doing it. But once, I don't know, it was someone spreading it in a meme, and it, and I saw some of it, and it was just, it was just really disgusting. Um, the logic of of the judges uh, who basically exonerated them. This created such a huge rejection that you know this already very strong feminist movement. Um, I think it, it, it helped kind of contaminate the rest of the population with, with this indignation and this just moral outrage and disgust at what the Spanish legal system was and judicial system was capable of justifying, right? Because this judge whose opinion that I, I just mentioned, I mean, he, he you know, had the gall to say like, oh, because she doesn't fight, she actually seems to be liking it. You know, like, oh, like things like that, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's truly disgusting, Daniel, like it's really gross. Um, so this kind of emboldened it. I think it, it socialized a, uh, a true disgust at what Spain is right now. Right. Um, and I think, you know, gestures like Pedro Sanchez naming most of the, the ministries, uh, putting them in the hands of women are, are small gestures, but, but, you know, they're definitely, winks at that movement. Um, well, that almost also has <clears throat> very, very strong uh, feminist uh, figures in, in their party as well. And, you know, they're very much showing solidarity uh, with one another in their rejection of the situation and doing a really good job of like, not letting kind of party-based squabbling uh, distort the message, which is something that Indignados movement and all these kind of large scale movements that are able to kind of change or reorient common sense um, tend to do. So, so that's one thing that I think will certainly condition the, the approach of the new government and politics just going forward. Um, and then the other thing is the pensioners protest. Now the pension, the pension situation in Spain, I mean, it's a long, uh, it's a long-term problem. It's not just based on inflation that the, that the pensions, that the pension funds are running out. Uh, Spain has a serious problem of population aging. Uh, it has, for several decades, been a very what, what 
what we call in social demography a lowest low fertility country. It had one of the lowest fertility rates in the world. It means that it wasn't replacing population for a very long time. They had mass immigration, uh, but it was not enough to offset the um, the effects, the population aging effects of very low fertility. And so you have a lot of people entering uh, pensioners' age, but then also the the popular party <laughs> kind of uh, you know, spent a lot of the pension money on different types of services. So, so this is a this is something that's that's just really problematic, um, and it affects a very large proportion of of the Spanish population. And in this case, I would say that it's also tied to the banking sector in the sense that a lot of uh, mobilizations in previous years focused on the sale by banks of financial products like preferred shares um, to pensioners who in, in many cases didn't even know what they were signing, right? Um, and, and then just suddenly like lost a ton of their funds. So, so there had been uh, previous mobilizations oriented around uh, what was happening to this section of the population. But now, um, you know, older folks are, truly scared about what's going to happen with their pensions. And this is particularly important in the political composition of Spain because the popular party and the socialist party um, are largely supported by older voters. So there might be a shift from the popular party to the socialist party here. Well, Carlos Doclos, thank you so much for coming back on so soon after already spending so much time talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a pleasure. Anytime. Carlos Del Clos is a sociologist, researcher, editor for Roar Magazine, and the author of Hope is a Promise. From the Indignados to the Rise of Podemos in Spain. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after calling Ferdinand VII a despotic coward, a tiger with the heart of a hare, a man as greedy of authority as unfit to exercise it, a prince pretending to absolute power in order to be enabled to renounce it into the hands of his footmen, proud, however, of one thing, namely his perfect mastery in hypocrisy. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please do leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners, as does you telling your friends, family, strangers about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. Last but not least, please do find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation going.